Welcome to this week's edition of the GDPR Weekly Show. And as normal, I'd like to start off with a shout out to our new listeners. And this week we have new listeners in London, Derby, Southampton, Cardiff, Manchester, Birmingham, Oxford, Hull, Chester, Nottingham, Norwich, Portsmouth, Newcastle upon Tyne, Warrington, Swansea, Reading, Guildford, and Coventry. And then we also have new listeners in Carlo in Ireland, Calais in France, Hamburg in Germany, Puglia in Italy. We also have uh, new listeners in the Far East this week in South Korea, in Fujian in China, in Shiba in Japan. And then in Central America, we have new listeners in uh, Costa Rica, in San Jose. We have new listeners in British Columbia, in Canada. And then in the US this week, we have new listeners in California, Virginia, Washington State, New York, Texas, Maryland, Illinois, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Iowa, Colorado, Vermont, and Missouri. So, again, a nice wide range of listeners right across the world, and thank you to all those new listeners for tuning in to the GDPR Weekly Show. And of course, as always, thanks to all my regular listeners who uh, now listen to the GDPR Weekly Show uh, every week. I really appreciate you taking 30 minutes out of your week to catch up on the latest news in the world of GDPR. And as always, if you have any feedback for me, or any ideas of what you'd like to see in future programmes, or perhaps people you'd like me to interview in future programmes, then please don't hesitate to drop me an email at podcasts at insurety.co.uk, that's E-N-S-U-R-E-T-Y.co.uk, or you can go to our website at www.insurety.co.uk and check on the podcast link there and get details of all our podcasts from there. So in a few moments... I'll be telling you what's coming up in this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. So coming up in this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show, we have a update from the ICO on guidance towards GP surgeries and how they should be handling subject access requests. Um... Whilst some of that is specific to GP surgeries, I would say to everyone listening, it's one article that's well worth listening to because there are a number of outputs from that discussion which are relevant to all organisations and not just to GP surgeries. So please do have a listen to that article, this first article in this episode. We then have a look at the Data Protection Practitioners Conference, which is coming up in April. We then have an update on charities and what charities need to be doing to make sure they stay the right side of the law where GDPR is concerned. We then have an article looking at the results of a Cisco survey into... GDPR, its uptake and its effects so far. And then we end this week's episode with an article about a war of words which has erupted between the Dutch ICO 
and the Internet Advertising Bureau, the IAB, over the use of cookie walls for websites. And that, again, is well worth a listen uh, to see where the parts of what they're saying in their war of words uh, will have any impact on your website or your organisation. So, as usual, a full mitz bag of articles for the GDPR Weekly Show. Hope you enjoyed the show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. A few weeks ago, we mentioned on the GDPR Weekly Show about the issues that GP surgeries were having with an increased number of data subject access requests and particularly in the case of after an accident or other claim where now insurance companies were asking uh, individuals to make the subject access request to the surgery so that the surgery couldn't charge for it, which they would traditionally have charged the insurance company for such responses. Um, But the the downside in terms of GP surgeries was that this was giving them a lot of extra work for which they weren't receiving any financial reward. And as a result, the ICO agreed to look into the matter, um, which they've now done in connection with the BMA, the British Medical Association. And so they've established some ground rules, and some of them I think are quite interesting for not just GP surgeries, but right across the board, because um, to give a bit of background, medical practices have reported a significant rise in subject access requests since GDPR came into effect. Many believe this is partly down to lawyers and insurance companies increasingly submitting subject access requests on behalf of clients to support legal claims. Ultimately, it's in the interest of the uh, surgeries, the BMA and the ICO to promote a culture of transparency and compliance and ensure there's no detrimental impact on individual data rights, patient care or the ability of both the medical and indeed the legal and insurance professions to do their jobs as efficiently as possible. Now, an important point of the um, around GDPR, which the ICO was keen to stress, was that subject access requests, by their nature, are designed to be purpose blind, i.e., it's not for the uh, company or the organisation that is receiving the subject access request to dig and try and find out why the person making the request is making the request. You're not supposed to do that. It's purpose blind. As a result, whether someone was making an inquiry just out of personal interest or they were making an inquiry to fulfil a legal claim or an insurance claim is really ruled to be of no interest to the GP. However, of course, we do have to take into account the administrative impact of the increased workload on GP surgeries, particularly at a time when you know there's widespread uh, public concern, I think, about NHS workloads. 
The ICO was keen to stress that GDPR is an evolution and not a revolution of data protection legislation. And in many ways, the way that staff dealt with requests to ease the burden of printing reams of paper under previous framework is still valid. So they've come up with some practical tips, and I think these are useful to, obviously to GPs, but also probably to others as well. That it may be possible to satisfy a subject access request by rather than printing out lots of information, by finding a way of providing the patient or the customer in the terms of other organisations with online access to their records. Because if they can view the details online themselves, then you don't have to provide the information to them. And if they then want a hard copy, it's for them to print it out from your online source rather than you having to print it out and post it to them. It was pointed out that any request, any response to a request to a subject access request can be sent electronically and that a surgery or indeed any other organisation only needs to print paper copies if it's asked to do so. And again, there's a judgment called out as to what is reasonable. But the ICO has made clear that they would frown upon a failure to provide paper copies solely because of volume unless you could really justify as to why that was a substantial problem. What also came out from this though is that the ICO said to the GPs that they would encourage them whilst they can't ask why the person making the request specifically wants the request, they can perhaps aim to hone down the information that the person's requesting. So, i.e., is the person only requesting information about treatment they've received in the last three months? Or are they truly requesting all their data back to the data registered with the surgery? And I think that Again, it's an area that holds interest for everyone. So, you know, you can try and, and, and define down a bit what data the subject access request actually covers. Another interesting thing to come out of this was that in terms of the concept that, you know, of when you can charge for a request. Because... I think regular listeners to the GDPR Weekly Show and certainly people who've received training from ourselves will be aware that you can charge if someone makes a repetitive request or if a request is obviously vexatious. And the ICO have now issued some further guidance on that and have said that if someone when they make the request, makes clear that they are only making the request to cause hassle to the organisation that has to provide the data. And this, of course, could be a particular interest to local authorities where I know this has happened, or to other public corporations. So if the person is makes clear at the time that they make the request that they're only doing it to cause trouble, to cause hassle, then you are now entitled to make a charge for that subject access request or to uh, 
inform the person that there will be a charge and then ask them whether they still want to go ahead or not. And that charge isn't restricted. It only has to be a reasonable fee. And a reasonable fee is reckoned to be um, your average salary rate for an admin person times by the number of hours that you think it will take to satisfy that particular subject access request. So if you had a request which you said was going to take you 30 hours and your average rate of pay was £10 an hour, then you could say quite legitimately to someone, OK, we will fulfil that request for you, but it's going to cost you £300. And my guess is in that scenario, a good number of people will decide that actually they don't want to cause you that much hassle. Um, but of course it's about for each individual to decide. But, and it's a big but, you have to be able to prove that that's what the person said when they requested, made their subject access request. Now clearly if it's in writing, that's quite easy to prove. If it's a verbal request, request made by telephone or by someone who's actually out seeing that member of the public or a member of the public who walks into a store or an office, that's a bit more difficult. So do treat it with caution, but if you do have a true troublemaker, do bear in mind that that redress is now there, that you can make a charge. However, back to the issue of our GP surgeries for a minute. One interesting thing which the uh, ICO has come up with, or has decided, is that if a solicitor is making the request on behalf of the individual and can show written consent from the individual, and indeed the BMA have now come up with a model form to use for providing that consent, then the GP surgery ha is being told that it has to comply with that request and it can't charge for providing that information. However, what the ICO has decided is that if that request comes from an insurer, then even if they have a form saying that the person concerned has consented to them providing that information, then the GP surgery can still make a charge for providing that information. Now, I suspect it's going to be a short-lived win for GPs because my guess is insurers will wise up to this and become firmer in their view to uh, their clients, their people making insurance claim by saying that, you know, we'll provide you with the words, but you must send it yourself to the surgery. And then once you get a reply, you forward the reply on to the insurance company. Um, so I don't think that particular judgment by the ICO is going to make a big lot of difference. The other interesting thing to come out as well this week as part of this review, though, is the whole issue of GDPR for people who are deceased. Because... GDPR by itself ceases to function once someone has died. So whilst all of your data is nicely protected all the time you're alive, the minute you die, GDPR doesn't protect your data anymore. However, the UK Data Protection Act 
and 2018 and subsequent statutory instruments um, now include a clause which means that whilst GDPR doesn't apply, the Data Protection Act 2018, which provides pretty much the same cover as GDPR, does. And so there will be restrictions on who can access your data or what data you can access from someone who is deceased. And uh, it becomes a very real legal issue. So if you reach that point, then I would advise you to do go and talk to a lawyer for uh, up-to-date advice. Check us out on Facebook. Just a reminder that as well as the podcast, we now have our own Facebook group. Please do pop along and see us there at https colon slash slash www.facebook.com slash groups slash GDPR weekly show. That's always one word, GDPR weekly show. And uh, do please come and join the group and follow the discussions that are going on. You're listening to the GDPR weekly show with your host, Keith Budden. It's less than a month to go now to the Data Protection Practitioners Conference 2019, which is being held this year on Monday the 8th of April at the Manchester Central Conference Centre. Uh, it promises to be a full day. It's organised by the ICO and it includes uh, speakers, include the Information Commissioner herself, Elizabeth Denham, uh, the Right Honourable Margot James MP, uh, a panel session all talking about Brexit, led by Steve Wood, the ICO Deputy Commissioner for Policy, um, some details about the ICO Grants Programme, and the keynote speaker this year is Mark Rottenberg, the President and Executive Director of EPIC. And then in the afternoon, there are talks on ethical data protection, which again is a panel session, this time chaired by Simon McDougall, the ICO Executive Director for Technology, Policy and Innovation. And the panellists for that session are Dr. David Leslie from the Alan Turing Institute, Anthony Walker from Tech UK, and Louise Patsarest from CDEI. There will also be then a talk from Andy White, the Director of High Profile Investigations and Intelligence, followed by a question and answer session with Elizabeth Denham herself, the ICO. Now, tickets for the event have long since been sold out, um, but the good news is, is that the ICO will be making the whole conference available via live stream so that those who are unable to make it to Manchester for the event in person can view the proceedings um, from their own PC or other device that has internet access. Um, full details of the live stream will be released in the next few weeks and as soon as we have the relevant details we will bring them to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Please do share the GDPR Weekly Show podcast with your friends and colleagues. Uh, we're very pleased to have been in the 
uh, Apple iTunes Business Top 100 podcasts now in the US, in the UK, and this week we've also been in the Top 100 in Belgium and in Switzerland. So really, really pleased to see that, obviously, and we'd like to get higher up the charts. Uh, be great if we could get into top 40 rather than just top 100 so please do share the podcast with your colleagues and anyone else you think may be interested in what we have to say another development this week has been the decision by the fundraising preference service working together with the ICO to decide to name and shame charities who are not complying with the requirements of GDPR. Now, charities, of course, are exempt from pay, paying the annual registration fee to the ICO for GDPR, but that doesn't mean that all the other parts of GDPR don't apply to them, and yet for quite a number of charities, it appears that this seems to have passed them by. Um, the list of charities has been released by the Fundraising Preference Service. I don't intend to actually name and shame individual charities on the list uh, in the GDPR Weekly Show because I don't feel it's the right platform to do that. But it would be fair to say that the majority of charities on the list are what one would class as smaller local charities who perhaps understandably um, haven't grasped that GDPR applies to them and particularly the rules regarding consent and communication and that if someone says please don't contact me anymore then that really does mean please don't contact me anymore even if you believe you have the most worthy charitable cause the world has ever heard heard of. Um, but again, so if you're involved with uh, local charities, whether that's as a trustee or whether that's as a charity, maybe as a business you work alongside, do make sure that they have grasped the concepts of GDPR and indeed they are following best practice because if they don't, they may well find themselves on this public list, which is being produced by the fundraising regulator. And I don't think that actually that's going to be good news for the charities concerned. So if you do know a charity, make sure they are compliant. If they're not compliant, please feel free to send them in our direction to uh, Insurity. Get them to contact us at podcasts at Insurity dot uk, and we'll be glad to help them and if there's sufficient demand from charities I'd be quite happy to run a webinar at minimal cost and of course for the charities involved it would have the benefit that they wouldn't uh, incur travel costs to need to actually come to a physical location those taking part in the webinar could just do so via their own internet connection and I'd be very happy to organise a webinar or webinars in the next few months if the interest is there. So as I say if you are associated with a charity and that would be of interest to you please do let me know um, in the usual way. 
You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Some interesting figures released by a Cisco survey this week, and our thanks to Cisco for sharing this information, um, is that backs up our uh, thoughts, which we've had for a while, and again, those of you who've received training from us will know that we believe that done correctly, uh, GDPR should be seen as a business opportunity and not a a business cost. Uh, well, the survey from Cisco has found some interesting um, responses to how companies are dealing with GDPR. When they looked at companies within the UK, um, 69% of firms now consider themselves to be fully GDPR compliant. Now, that's still, if you think about it, it's still 3 out of 10 who aren't. Um, which is kind of worrying, given that we are now coming up to almost the stage where we're carrying out the first audits for the completion of a year of GDPR being in operation. Kind of a little worrying that 3 out of 10 uh, still don't consider themselves fully compliant, but there you go. But anyway, that compares with 59% of companies outside of the EU who now consider themselves GDPR compliant. And outside of the EU, a further 29%, which of course will take them up to uh, best part of 90%, uh, 29% will expect to be compliant within a year. So within a year, 90% of companies outside the EU are expecting to be fully GDPR compliant. So as another incentive, I would hope that companies within the UK who aren't yet compliant take strong action to become compliant. And some of the benefits which companies say that they've found is that they're less likely to have a data breach if they're GDPR compliant. Uh, the probability of sustaining a breach for a GDPR compliant organisation is only 74% against 80% for firms which are only partially compliant or 89% for firms which aren't compliant at all. And also they found that when there is a data breach for companies who are GDPR compliant that the amount of downtime they suffer as a result of data breaches is, is greatly reduced um, from 9.4 weeks of downtime for companies who aren't GDPR compliant to 6.4 weeks of downtime for companies that are compliant. And obviously three weeks of company time can be a considerable amount of money in value to the company. But almost all, 97% of those companies surveyed um, cited at least one of a host of benefits not directly to related to data protection, and 75% cited at least two. For instance, 42% of firms said that GDPR compliance has improved the scope for innovation due to the fact they now have the right data controls in place. And also, interestingly, 41% of organisations said they were able to gain a competitive advantage against others or greater operational efficiency because now they knew they had all their data organised and catalogued rather than maybe being rather ramshackle as it might have been before. So by having to document what data they held, 
but I haven't documented why they were holding it and I haven't documented the processes that they were putting that data through has given these organisations this benefit of being able to increase their operational efficiency and also to find new ways of working with that data which maybe hadn't occurred to them before because they'd not actually taken the time to sit down and look fully at the data they were holding and what they were doing with it. Interestingly, over a third, 37% of companies asked, said they'd been able to reduce pre-existing sales delays due to privacy concerns from customers. And a similar number of organisations, 36%, said that they'd noticed that they'd in increased approaches from investors. So it seems that, you know, right across the board, from internally within the company to your clients, to your potential future investors, people notice a real benefit of being GDPR compliant, which, as I say, goes back to what I was saying in our opening sentence of this uh, section, that GDPR done correctly is a business opportunity and not a business problem. I'll use the old adage that an opportunity is a problem looked at from the wrong end. Um, If you'd like some help on discovering how in your business GDPR can be a opportunity rather than a problem, then we're always happy to have a no-obligation discussion with you. So if you'd like us to do that, please do get in touch with us um, via uh, email to podcasts at insurity.co.uk. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. A war of words has erupted between the Dutch uh, ICO and the Internet Advertising Bureau, the IAB, um, over cookie walls. Uh, cookie walls are uh, this concept which you will probably all have seen by now on websites where it pops up when you go on to a website and says that this website uses cookies. Do you agree? Boom, boom. If you continue to use your your saying that you do agree, etc. And most people just ignore them and carry on and use the site anyway. But they, some people do take notice and say, no, I don't want you to do that. And what the uh, Dutch ICO is saying is that actually having that requirement that someone agrees to receiving tracking cookies from a website before they're being allowed access to the website, if you like, a price of entry to the site is not compliant with GDPR. And the Dutch ICO says it's received dozens of complaints from internet users who had had their access to websites blocked after refusing to accept tracking cookies. So it's taken the step now of publishing guidance on the issue. Um, And it says that it's also going to be stepping up monitoring, adding that it is written to the most complained about organisations, although it wouldn't release any names when we spoke to them earlier this week, instructing them to make changes to ensure they come into compliance with GDPR. Interestingly, we've spoken to the UK ICO on this and they say that they too have received complaints, but they've not yet come to any conclusions. Um, Now, GDPR tightens the rules around consent as a legal basis for processing personal data. That's something we all know by now. 
requiring it to be specific, informed and freely given in order for it to be valid under the law. Now, of course, consent's not the only legal basis for processing personal data, but most websites that are using particularly third-party advertising cookies are relying on consent, and that's typically via the cookie wall. The Dutch ICO's guidance makes it clear that internet visitors must be asked for permission in advance of any tracking software being placed. And they give examples of third-party tracking cookies, tracking pixels, which might be, for instance, from affiliate networks, and browser fingerprinting, which might be used for retargeting. And that that permission must be freely obtained. And this is where we get into war words between the Dutch ICO and the Internet Advertising Bureau, the IAB, over quite what freely obtained means. Because the Dutch ICO is taking the line of saying that it means a free choice must be offered. So in other words, a data for access cookie wall isn't going to trust it. Or as the ICO puts it, permission is not free if someone has no real or free choice. Or if the person cannot refuse giving permission without adverse consequences. This is not for nothing. Website visitors must be able to trust that their personal data is being properly protected. There's no objection to software for the proper functioning of the website and the general analysis of the visit on that site. More so, a monitoring and analysis of behaviour of website visitors and the sharing of this information with other parties, though, is only allowed with permission. And the point which the uh, Dutch ICO is hammering home is that that permission must be completely free. They say that cookie walls are non-compliant with the principles of consent of GDPR. This means any party with a cookie wall on their website has to be compliant as soon as possible and that they intend to start checking within the next couple of months that this is happening. In light of this, the cookie wall on the Internet Advertising Bureau, the IAB's European site, looks like a textbook example of what not to do. And if you want to have a look, you can go to www.iabeurope, also one word, iabeurope.eu. Um, so this is an example of what not to do. Given the online ad industry association is, is bundling multiple cookie uses, site functional cookies, site analytical cookies, <coughs> excuse me, and third-party advertising cookies under a single I agree option. It does not offer visitors any way of opting out at all, not even under the more info or privacy policy options. If the user does not click, I agree, they cannot gain access to the IAB's website, so there's no free choice. It's agree or leave. And you might think, OK, I'll click on more info, but if you click on more info, you get a load more info about what they're doing with your data. But still, at the bottom of that page, there's only one option. It just says, I agree. Now, when we spoke with the IAB, they said that so far no data protection agency had been in touch with them regarding their cookie wall. And this in itself seems to conflict with what the Dutch ICO are saying, but you know, we're not quite sure at the moment which, which of them is, is 100% right. But interestingly, the uh, IAB subsequently issued a statement saying that their view was that the 
e-privacy directive, and that's not the new e-privacy things which are currently under review, but the original e-privacy directive dating back to 2002 was what they were relying on, and that their view was that the e-privacy directive trumped GDPR. And so the IAB's position was because e-privacy has been around longer, then that applies more than GDPR. Not surprisingly, the Dutch ICO doesn't agree with them. And so <laughs> this has now become a real battle of words between the Dutch ICO and the IAB as to quite who is correct. But it has a fundamental issue which could affect a good number of websites on whether, if someone does not agree to accept the cookies from you, whether you can use that as a reason to refuse that person access to your website full stop. And the Dutch ICO is saying, no, that does not allow you to stop people viewing your website. The IAB is saying, yes, it does. I have to say that my personal view at the moment, having reviewed the information submitted by the Dutch ICO and from the IAB, is that I'm coming down on the side of the Dutch ICO. That my view is that a cookie wall, whilst you need to take notice of what people say as to whether they're happy to have your uh, cookies on their browser from using your site or not, and you should make sure you've got code in place to make sure that happens, and perhaps that's something we're covering in a, in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show, but that you can't refuse access to the site solely on the basis that people will not agree to receive your cookies, which is the line the IAB seem to be saying. I think this one's going to run and run. It could be the uh, the GDPR equivalent to Brexit, I think, in length of time it could take to come to a conclusion which satisfies everybody. Um, let's hope it's not quite as long as Brexit. But... Whatever, we will keep you updated in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show because I think there is a fundamental issue here which needs to be resolved and I'm hoping that in the next few weeks at least we'll be able to get a chance to talk to the ICAO here in the UK and establish a firm view from them on where they sit in this argument. If you've got any views on this, do please get in touch at podcasts at insurity.co.uk. I'd love to hear what you've got to say. It would be interesting to know what the feel is out there in the big wide world of what you feel. Should the cookie wall enable you to prohibit someone from visiting your website unless they agree to have your cookie? What do you think? Let me know. Send me an email to podcasts at insurity.co.uk co.uk e-n-s-u-r-e-t-y.co.uk and as I say we'll be following this up for certain in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host Keith Budden So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show 
I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it entertaining. Please do let me know. Let me have your feedback by sending an email to podcast.insurity.co.uk. You can find out more about us at Insurity at www.insurity.co.uk. And I look forward to speaking to you again, same time, same place, next week. Have a good week, everybody, and remember, keep your data safe. Check us out on Facebook. The GDPR Weekly Show is an Insurity production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurity.